tonight on Arena. Steven Spielberg remakes West Side Story, one of three movies we'll be reviewing this evening, and Hamilton creator Lin-Manuel Miranda on his film version of Tick, Tick, Boom. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. In Lin-Manuel Miranda's smash hit musical Hamilton, our hero is repeatedly asked, why do you write like you're running out of time? The same question could be asked of John, the protagonist in Tick, Tick, Boom, a theatre writer racing against the clock to get the words and music out of his head and onto the page. The film is based on the life of Jonathan Larson, the genius creative mind behind Rent, a musical that revolutionised theatre in the 1990s, just as Hamilton did years later. Rent went on to become a smash hit, but Jonathan Larson died suddenly after the first preview from an undiagnosed cardiac condition. The film Tick, Tick, Boom marks the feature directorial debut of Manuel Miranda, who of course wrote Hamilton and In the Heights. Lynn grew up loving musicals, but didn't see a clear path into the world of music theatre until Jonathan Larson's Rent came along. Larson's work not only sparked a dream, but kept that dream alive in moments of doubt, one of the central themes of Tick, Tick, Boom. The film is inspired by an autobiographical musical that Jonathan Larson wrote concurrently with Rent in the late 1980s to early 90s. I spoke to Lin-Manuel Miranda earlier today and I began by asking him about the impact of going to see Rent on Broadway on his 17th birthday. Oh, uh, it was it was seismic. It was seismic for me. I was in the last row of the Nederlander Theatre with my high school sweetheart, Meredith Somerville, who got me the tickets for my birthday. And it was the original cast. It was the first truly contemporary musical I'd ever seen. I know Chorus Line was contemporary when it came out, but that's 20 years prior. Uh, West Side Story, 20 years before that. Um, it took place in my hometown, just a, you know, a few hundred blocks downtown from where I lived. Um, it was the most diverse cast I'd ever seen on Broadway. It actually looked like the real New York I lived in, not the white New York of a Woody Allen movie or most musicals. Um, and it was the most contemporary sounding thing I'd ever heard. These are real pop songs, but they're telling a story. Um, so in, in many ways, it was the show that gave me permission to write musicals um, because it was not some show that took place in some other time in some other land. And I loved musicals like Camelot and Les Miserables and Phantom, but it was the first one that felt like it took place here and now. And that changed everything for me. Yeah, and of course, the great tragedy was, as we know, Jonathan Larson never got to see the success that that musical was. And that is at the heart of Tick, Tick, Boom. He was writing Tick, Tick, Boom and the story of this of himself struggling as he was writing Rent. The two were happening concurrently. Yeah, and, and, and that also gives us permission for a delicious moment in the movie of Tick, Tick, Boom, where you see him playing with the chords for one song, Glory, uh, as he's trying to come up with this song, and then he gets interrupted uh, by his girlfriend uh, on the phone. Um, but yeah, I mean, in many ways, Tick, Tick, Boom is his artistic way of processing the loss of his 20s. He spent his 20s writing a musical called Superbia that no one wanted to produce. Um, And they said it's too expensive for Off-Broadway, it's too weird for On-Broadway. So what about Off-Broadway? It's too expensive for Off. You you gotta cast us thousands with special effects. Uh, 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 Charlie, tell them I'll be on in a sec. Listen, sweetie, I gotta... I'm sorry, Rosa. Congratulations on a terrific presentation. Rosa, Rosa, hold on. So, okay, 
So what am I supposed to do now? You start writing the next one. And after you finish that one, you start on the next. And on and on. And that's what it is to be a writer, honey. You just keep throwing them against the wall. And And so he writes this show called Tick, Tick, Boom. It's semi-autobiographical. And he was like, you can't tell me me in a rock band is too expensive to produce. Um, and so, uh, but, but in many ways it's, it's processing the loss of that time and, and clearing the decks for what would become rent. And indeed when, when Jonathan Larson himself did the show, uh, prior to rent, obviously it was just a one man show, him and a band, but then it grew slightly in David Auburn's original stage production. Uh, this was about five years after Jonathan Larson's death. And you saw that three times, I believe. I did. I was my senior year of university. Um, The first time I saw it, it was the month after the terrorist attacks of September 11th. It was my first time downtown since those attacks uh, at 14th Street at the Jane Street Theater. And again, it hit me like a thunderbolt because now I've gone and done it, right? Like now I'm a theater major. (laughs) I've followed Jonathan Larson's advice from seeing Rent at age 17. And here is this show that says, um, you know, the clock is always ticking. And are you okay with making art if the world doesn't notice? Um, And your friends are going to grow up and get real jobs. Um, Even your really talented friends that should be making movies uh, and writing songs, they're going to grow up and you're going to be the only one banging your head against the childhood dream. are you okay with that? And it clarified my resolve in that respect. Yeah, because all of this is pre-Hamilton. And I mean, when, when we think of what Hamilton... Yeah, pre, pre-living in New York as an adult. <laughs> yeah. So, you know what, the effect that that musical had on your entire career, it must be something similar to what would have happened if Jonathan Larson had got to survive through Rent. It's just, every time you say it, it's just, it is so tragic. But you played Jonathan in, in a 2014 stage production then. I mean, you who else was going to make this movie? You see it in your senior year, you see Rent, you see Tick, Tick, Boom in your senior year at college. You star as Jonathan Larson in a, in a production in 2014. Who could make the movie if it wasn't you? Well, that's what I said to Julia when she <laughs> approached me with the, with the film rights. Who but me could make this movie? I felt like I'd been preparing all my life to, to honour Jonathan Larson and, and pay him back for everything he'd given me. Uh, but you were a little bit, were you, at this stage, you were a little bit over the 30 that you'd need to be to sing 30, 90 uh, uh, in the way that Andrew Garfield does in the film. Oh yeah, I mean, I and I was I was so lucky that I played I played Jonathan uh, when I was 34 years old. I was it was like this is the last chance I'm going to get to credibly play it, um, and so that that performance really came at a at a fulcrum in my life. I my co-stars were Karen Olivo, who was my co-star in my first show in The Heights, and Leslie Odom Jr., who would be my future co-star in Hamilton. I was super pregnant with Hamilton at the time. Our our premiere was a few months away when we did that performance of Tick, Tick, Boom. My wife was super pregnant with our first child. It was just sort of the moment in the roller coaster where you're just waiting <laughs> for things to happen. Uh, and so it was kind of the perfect time uh, in my life for, for that show to come along. Did you, did you give that to Andrew Garfield as a potential kind of subtext as he goes into the big 3090 number in the film? Uh, no, Andrew didn't need my help in that respect. I think he, you know, he he's so rigorous about his research uh, for roles and all I needed to do was give him the time and the resources uh, to be able to sing in the way that Jonathan sang and play in the way that Jonathan played. Um, and then um, the great joy was the collaboration of 
constantly asking ourselves, what would Jonathan Larson do uh, in, in any of the given situations that this film presents? Alexander Hamilton. My name is Alexander Hamilton. And there's a million things I haven't done. But just you wait, just you wait. When he was ten, his father split full of it. When we when we think of your situation with Hamilton and, and Jonathan Larson's situation with Rent, as described there from the film uh, Thirty Nights, when when Andrew Garfield thinks Thirty Ninety, Larson Hamilton, ten two men who both died very young, long before they were done for sure. That must have struck you at some point along the way. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a that's a chicken egg scenario. I think that a, a great deal of Hamilton's sense of urgency was something I had gleaned from Jonathan Larson's work and. And this notion of getting as much done possible because tomorrow's not promised. Jonathan's work mm. has lessons about that, and Jonathan's life has lessons uh, about that. And um, you know, I think I think the secret of Hamilton's success—it's not about politics and it's not about government. It's about um, all these characters are wrestling with. If we can hear the ticking clock of mortality, and Burr and Hamilton both heard that very loudly, what is our approach? What are we meant to do with the time we have? And that's a question we all ask ourselves. Finally then, obviously the world of music theatre tragically lost Stephen Sondheim, who had had a full life, yes, but still uh, awful to lose him. He was a mentor to Jonathan Larson and a mentor to you. Just tell us about the note that he gave to you uh, on on the voicemail that his character leaves in the film, that, that his character leaves in the film for Jonathan. Yeah, well, listen, um, I I was very inclusive with Steve on the making of this film, you know, so much depended on on his blessing, Um, the homage to Sunday uh, that we do to his work Sunday in the park with George. Um, And we have a character of Stephen Sondheim on screen. And um, when I finally worked up the courage to show him the film was pretty late in production. And he wrote me back being like, I think he said, you treated me gently and royally, for which I'm grateful. Um, And I think the voicemail that Steve leaves John could be better. Can I re-record it for you? Um, And that was incredibly generous of him. And in the wake of his passing um, is is even more profound because it's a message of um, you should be proud uh, and keep writing and keep going. Um, and 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 I'm really grateful the movie honors both of his legacies, both his immortal work and his his profound legacy of mentorship to not just me and not just John, but generations of makers. Um, and and I think that's that's the more profound legacy he leaves behind. Lynn Manuel Miranda, thank you so much for being with us on Arena this evening. Thank you. Don't forget the neighbors, Michelle and Gay. Andrew Garfield and friends there in a scene from Tick, Tick, Boom. And before that, we heard Lin-Manuel Miranda speaking to us about that film, which is currently available on Netflix. Tonight, tonight, tonight is Thursday night. You know, there was some suggestion that I might sing that, but I couldn't come up with a tune. But the films under Arena's critical gaze this evening are Steven Spielberg's guest what? West Side Story. Uh, feature revival of the Broadway classic with in which the director says was his most 
challenging and which had many wondering whether it needed to be remade given the obvious perfection of the 1961 film. Adam McKay's Don't Look Up, which features a starry ensemble facing the considerable challenge of a comet headed straight for Earth with total destruction guaranteed. Um, More on that. And the enigmatic performer Numi Rapace is back with the Icelandic horror film Lamb about mourning parents and their unusual surrogate child, Michael Pope, Gemma Cray, have been to the movies for us and they're with me this evening. We'll start with West Side Story. Um, you can't kind of say it's a reboot, really. Still set in 1950s New York, but it's it's a modern film. What has changed here, Gemma? Um, there's a lot of um, updates in this film. So the, the story is still the same. It's still about um, two sparring gangs, white supremacists and Puerto Ricans. Sharks um, and jets. The sharks and the jets, of course, in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Um, they do update it a little bit and that they focus more on the fact that it's a lot of gentrification happening. So these communities are displaced and instead of blaming the authorities who are kind of going in and forcing it, they sort of take uh, the troubles out on each other. Um, there's, yeah, I think they've updated it because definitely there's no brown face in this. All mm. the characters are actually <laughs> from a Latinx background. Um, they're, it's spoken, a lot of it in Spanish. I was saying maybe brush up on the Duolingo if you haven't mm. already because it's not subtitled. Not subtitled, yeah. Yeah, there's... Um, there was a tomboy, anybody's character who was a tomboy in the last one now is kind of officially transgender. And they have, again, another character who was, um, I think she was, she wasn't in the original, but I think Maria was brown-faced character, yeah. which was which is really inappropriate. But actually now they have, um, I think Anita is played by uh, and Andriana DeBoss, who is spectacular, and she's like a strong woman of color, right. which is much more representational of New York at that time as well. Okay, um, Michael, you came to this with, I would say, if Sif said, the lowest of low <laughs> expectations. <laughs> I was cantankerous, cranky, whatever you want to call it. Now, mm. I, I'm glad you didn't ask me that question yeah. uh, that you asked Gemma there, because I've never seen the original, and I kind of mm. I was conflicted about that after I've seen this. Uh, because I felt like should I do it for my research, but I didn't. Mm. I, I kind of said to myself, I wanted to review this on it on its on its own terms. Yeah, but um, I'm kind of to know me is to know my gentle loathing for all things musical. That goes for yeah. them all, Oklahoma, Greece, any a lot. Um, so I'm totally surprised that this <laughs> worked me over like a prize fighter. It's a belter of a movie. Now it is obviously the most successful commercial director in history. He's he, yeah. he, he do this kind of thing in his sleep, you know, and it's it's impeccably staged, you know, he's got millions yeah, of dollars. And then to be fair, the nineteen fifty seven yeah, stage I, I, show I, and the nineteen sixty one film original. did kind of okay as well. And this is this is as he's at pains to say, an adaptation of the musical and not, yes, not Robert Wise's nineteen sixty one film. But I can't really speak to that because I this is mm. my first experience of um, of West Side Story and my God it's down from everything down to the visuals by Janusz Kaminski to the to the camera work and it's not just it's, all, it's not all kinetic and, and editing there is he lets it breathe you know because you know you get to see the choreography and these massive stagings in really nice kind of expansive wide right. shots you get to enjoy it all as well as having kind of the modern edge that Gemma mentioned with you know the casting and the kind of the themes of gentrification and racism and all that so it blew me away, really did. Uh, and there you go, you'll be yeah. back watching the 1961 one before over the that, Christmas. That's where I was kind of unsure because it does sound like that. It's a lot of the some of the aspects of it might kind of get in my nerves a little bit, only in kind of a modern sense, despite yeah. its despite its obvious quality. Yeah. Yeah, because there were, there were, and there have been debates about certain aspects of West Side Story in terms of the treatment of the Latinx, uh, Latinx community, for sure, Gemma. But um, 
Tony and Maria, Ansel Elgort and Rachel Zegler, the, the two car- actors here, what do they bring? I think these are the hard parts. They're, they're, yeah. they're really wishy-washy, the two parts, aren't they? I know. It's it's. I think this is probably my one gripe with the film. I Again, I agree with everything that Michael's after saying. It's spectacularly visual. Mm. It's the movement. Every every frame is, is a painting. But I these characters are still underwritten. Um, they're actually cast better because they're more age appropriate. They're yeah. not like, you know, in their mid to late 30s um, who are dancers who maybe can't sing. <laughs> like they're they're excellent performers. But I think um, Maria is so young looking. And then um, Tony gives off these real kind of arrogant frat vibe vibes. Oh, so right. there's no, there's yeah. no kind of, I, I don't feel like there's a natural Chemistry connection to connect, them. Right. And uh, again, there's, there's a bit of humour that was in the 1961 film that's missing here. So it, it's harder to warm to them. Yeah. I think, I think the supporting characters are much more developed and much more interesting. All right. Let's have a listen to, um, uh, as, as I said, that the, the two actors here, Ansel Eldort and Rachel Zegler in action together. Tonight, tonight, it all began tonight. I saw you on the world went away. Tonight, tonight, there's only you tonight. What do you want? What do you do? What do you say? Today, all day, I had the feeling a miracle would happen. I know now I was right. For here you are, and what was just a world, there's a store. I'm glad I didn't sing it at the beginning of the item. Now, <laughs> Hansel Elgort and Richard Zegler. Musically, there's nothing missing here for sure, Michael. Oh, uh, I was surprised. I thought I thought maybe Rachel Ziegler as Maria was maybe a kind of an American Idol or America's Got Talent kid. Mm. Um, I was very surprised to find out that she responded to a Twitter casting call by Steven Spielberg and became number uh, and got her part out of thirty thousand other auditionees. I think she's so Twitter in, has uh, uses. Yes, well, <laughs> it's debatable still. Um, I think she's incredible. I do think that she has a timeless quality mm. that um, Ansel Elgort is is seriously missing. I think he's fine. He can dance, he can sing, he can act. But he is, uh, he is too old for her. And also he's kind of just, he is a tall, good looking white guy. And I think the, with, with, with kind of, if there's something more going on behind the eyes and maybe with more chemistry between the two of them. Yeah. Um, I, but I do, I still, I mean, in their defence, I still, there's a real problem with these, with those parts, you know, the nice guy, the nice girl, that's kind of what they both have to do, which is, very difficult to do um, but it, the, Tony Kushner is the person who could have given them I suppose more meat on those parts because he, he's the uh, award winning writer of Angels in America and many other great plays uh, he he gives us a new character this is a beautiful kind of f- completion of a circle yeah I think again a lot of people might argue this did not need to be remade but I actually think it's more timely than Mm. ever like those themes of of um Racism in the states of of hierarchy of of social inequities, like it's all just absolutely there, and I think he, it's being brought to new generation. I think the one thing he missed out on is maybe 
keeping some of the humour of the original. Like everything is done with such a deep sincerity that it, it loses an element of the charm. And that's mm. that's my only criticism. I mean, he does so much in elevating even the, the supporting characters. So I think we had mentioned Riff, um, Anita, who is, he, he's, he's changed all the characters and kind of given them a much more rounded backstory. Yeah, and he's taken Anita Rita Moreno, who played uh, Anita in the original film. Uh, yes. He's given her a new part where she's kind of the Friar Lawrence situ- character from from uh, from Romeo and Juliet, the Shakespeare play on which the whole thing is based, and indeed the Doc character from who owned the the drugstore in the in the original film. Let's listen to a scene featuring uh, Rita Moreno as Valentina, uh, and here she is. I think. Uh, a little bit of advice for Tony. What's forever? Like, I want to be with you forever. You don't want to start maybe with, I'd like to take you out to coffee? No. Come on. I want to take you to a shop full of nuts for a cream cheese sandwich on a raisin bread. This ain't casual like that. Oh. I want to be with you forever. Quiero estar contigo para siempre. Quiero estar con... con... con contigo, with you, contigo. para siempre. 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 A little bit of a Spanish lesson along the way there from Rita Moreno as Valentina, new character that Tony Kushner has put into this updated version of West Side Story. Incidentally, there's a documentary about Rita Moreno um, where we, an amazing documentary, we've been watching it, we're speaking to the director of that documentary next week and Rita Moreno talks about this film, about the remake and she also talks about the original uh, the original West Side Story in amazing types uh, types of ways, and the the, the the subtitles thing. I heard people giving yeah. out that you know, if you don't understand it, I did I, think there was something wrong at a certain point. Yeah, I do. I, but I, it, is it is it kind of like now you know what it's like for us if we if you speak Spanish and that, that, and the presumption quote, is you know less, it English. Yeah. That's more or less a direct quote from Spielberg. He said he felt that subtitling in Spanish was disrespectful to the one half of the country of America and that's kind of thematically it does make sense because it, it, it is a kind of a it, I didn't have a problem with it because there is a, such a there's such a lyrical kind of um, dynamic and tone to the way they speak anyway you kind of understand what's being said it's not going to change your, your your embracing of the story at all it's a, right. bold, it's a bold choice but he has made some bold choices especially with anybody's and kind of um, and, and the progression of um, or the, rather the casting of Rita Moreno as that new character but yeah. you know I think, it, I think it pays off I don't, can't see anybody getting really annoyed about it can you? Does it work and should you just watch both? <laughs> yeah I, I am going to watch the original eventually Yeah Yeah I would, I, like again I I there's, there's such differences. I think it's bringing it to a whole new generation. It's well worth a watch. No issues there. A text in actually telling us that Rita Moreno will be 90 on Saturday. Isn't that amazing? And actually, she's the documentary starts with her on her 87th birthday. I want to be like that when I'm 87, <laughs> if you get a chance to see the documentary. Anyway, that's next week's item. How many stars uh, are you talking about here, did you say, Gemma? Four stars. Very Four enjoyable. stars. Very enjoyable. Yeah. Strong four. And I think it's his best movie since Catch Me If You Can. And you're going back to watch. I'm going. To, I'm going to go see this again tomorrow. You're going to see this again yes, tomorrow. Yes, I'm going to see it again the tomorrow. 1961 film. I now. will get there eventually, but uh, I, I'm, I'm really, I'm looking forward to seeing this again. Oklahoma. 
<laughs> no, Singing in the Rain is next, apparently. Singing in the Rain is next. Okay. Um, I've been told. Right. Let <laughs> us move on to our second film, Don't Look Up, from Adam McKay, who brought us The Big Short, and Vice uh, continues to bring a succession, of course. The cast for this film is The Stuff of Dreams, depending on your perspective. I'll try to do this in order of merit, but that's all subjective. I'm starting with the Oscar winners, Meryl Streep, Kate Blanchett, Leonardo DiCaprio, Mark Rylance, Jennifer Lawrence, and now the mere nominees, Jonah Hill, Timothy Chalamet, Timothy Chalamet, I should say, of course. Oh, and Ron Perlman and Ariara Grande. I mean, the list just goes on and on. Um, what, what, what are they doing in the film, Michael? What's uh, well, the... Jennifer Lawrence's Kate DiBiaschi. Yeah, that, that, her second name will, will take on quite, quite a meaning in a moment. Um, she's like a grad student. She's working in, in a telescope and uh, her and her professor, um, Leonardo DiCaprio, plays uh, his character's called Dr. Randall Mindy. A bearded Leonardo a beard, DiCaprio. Well, yeah, if, if, yeah, well, I mean, I can't I know, you've, you're very bearded. <laughs> uh, but be they said. make this astounding discovery and um, it's, it's a comet orbiting the solar system and the problem is it's on a direct course to Earth. It's the size of Mount Everest and uh, they head straight to the White House and it seems like it's going to go all deep impact Armageddon, let's get our troops in order. But... They don't seem to really care because it would affect their polling numbers and they have a Supreme Court <laughs> nominee going right. in. So they kind of feel the need to really take this to the media, go on national television yeah. on a media tour. And that doesn't kind of quite go as they suspect either. Yeah, I, I, you know, when you when I heard it first, all oh, right, comment about to hit her, Jennifer Lawrence is this young student and Leonardo DiCaprio yeah, as a series. And then I saw the film. <laughs> this is not a serious film, it must be said. Definitely not. Um, Adam McKay. So again, like it, it, it's it's in the vein of the the Big Short. But if you if you ramped up the silliness, well, the Big 11. Short, the Big Short was even though it was silly, was making a very serious point. Oh yes, yes, mm. and I mean this definitely has a serious point underneath all deep deep underneath all mm. the the farce because again that's the comet is is a very clear metaphor for <laughs> climate change right. and how everyone is ignoring it um so no it, it it's and laughing at it if they watch this film i guess um i think it it the the jokes and the characters are so over the top but actually they have towards the end like when you see the repercussions of possibly ignoring it like they do talk about it and it does sort of go to these Darker right. Uh, right. elements. Look, uh, let's let's uh, li- li- listen to a clip for uh, quite early on in the film. In fact, I think when uh, you, when you get to the into the room, as they say, the Oval Office, to be precise. Meryl Streep is the president of the United States at this point in time. Leonardo DiCaprio is the scientist that you mentioned, uh, and uh, also he's there with the bad news. Jennifer Lawrence is with him. The Oval Office, yeah, kind of surprising how they how they react. Let's have a listen. I heard there's an asteroid or a comet or something that you don't like the looks of. <sighs> Tell me about it. You got 20 minutes. 20 minutes? Go. Uh, a comet between five to 10 kilometers across that we estimate came from the Oort cloud. And using Gauss's method of orbital determination and the average astrometric uncertainty of 0.04 Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm so what? bored. Just tell us what it is. This, this Seriously, what? stop. What Dr. Mindy is trying to say wow. is that there's a comet headed directly towards Earth. And then what happens? Like a tidal wave? It will be far more catastrophic. There will, there will be mile-high tsunamis. So how certain is this? There's 100% certainty of impact. Please, don't say 100%. So we just call it a potentially significant event? But it isn't potentially going to happen. 99.78% to be exact. Oh, great. Okay, so it's not 100%. I'm gonna call it 70% and let's just, let's move on. But it's not even close to 70%. Let's just use like 60% as a working number. Okay.
Okay, so statistics, statistics, damn statistics and lies uh, what we're getting there. Michael Pope, um, you see, when I listen to that, my, my, when you think of the big short, how like the, what we were told there about finance was correct. It was factually correct what could be done with mm. the big, with shorting. Yeah. And it was explained to us. There we get a big load of scientific jargon. Is that, is the science here real or not? There's scientific jargon there, but there's also, and I think you can pick up on it there, a lot of improv and a lot of people thinking, they're quite, fu- quite, quite funny. You know, you can hear from John Hill particularly. He's come, he comes from the Apatow school of I'm gonna, I'm gonna riff until someone tells me to, st- to stop talking. Um, no, well, though. The, the, do you think that's all improvised there? No, I, th- think? I think him in particular. He's, right. g- I think he's given free reign. The Big Short does have a laser focus to its kind of. So it can be mm. preachy and quite kind of patronising in, in, in a way, like you know, Margot Robbie in a bathtub telling us about finance and stuff. It, you know, but I think after that and the success of that movie has kind of sent Adam McKay in deep down into this kind of like this self-satisfied kind of uh, uh, trilogy of movies. Now he had Christian Bale and his incredible performance as Dick Cheney yeah. in Vice to kind of hold that thing yeah. together and it did but it didn't all work and one of the criticisms level of that is it was kind of preachy and smarmy but you know get off your phone idiot this is happening in the real world but I do think this film doesn't have any of that going on yeah, it has it, a very talented cast who are all in different movies I think right, he think, yeah, I think he yeah, thinks this is his Doctor Strange love or maybe network, but it's it's so far from it, it's so scattershot that it just can't possibly be any of those and things. And the, the the tagline here, uh, Gemma, is based on real events that haven't happened yet. Now, again, we're into we're into dodgy science here. But if he wants to make a serious point about climate change, <laughs> based on real events that haven't happened yet, is is if is a different type of tagline. Is a more serious note to it. Yeah, and I think underlying it again, like it is, they do talk about all those things. And he even brings in actual facts. Like there's a department that he references that have a ridiculous logo and, and phrase that he that he references uh, in that same big short mm. vein. Like it, it uses the same visual language and jokes um, that that does, but it doesn't have that same focus. And I think it's because it's written by him, produced by him, directed by him. I wonder, would he have benefited from uh, another eye on board, maybe kind of guiding it a little bit more, um, because right. again, it's 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 too long for just a straight comedy when there's so little kind of actual emotional arcs through it. I mean, I think um, Jennifer Lawrence's character is is sort of the only straight character in in a lot of ways, mm. um, and and she's sort of forgotten right. for big chunks of the film. So it's it's difficult to watch that level of farce for that long a time. Stars from you, first of all, this uh, time, Michael. i got to say, I was, I just, this film infuriated me. The tone, everything. I thought it, it missed every single open goal it had. It, just had to, it really could have been something special, especially with what's going on in the world now and what's going to happen in the next 50 years. But I hated it. One out of five. One out of five. I hated it. He, uh, <laughs> he, he, he explained. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I thought the humour was great. It was just unfocused. Um, I thought the message was strong behind it. I thought there were great performances yeah. there. I think it could have done with a nice chop. Um, but I give it three and a half. Right, I think so it's you, enjoyable. Yeah, you enjoyed it. You enjoyed yeah. it. Fair enough. OK, let us move on then to Lamb. <laughs> no, this is not a really old Irish film. <laughs> yes, that's uh, what I mentioned that earlier Cleverly, on. No one so seemed to know what I was talking <laughs> yeah. about. Uh, well, there's our Liam Neeson, I believe. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. true. You lame niche and you believe that's okay. Let's move on to this one then. Uh, Iceland, a folk horror drama called Lamb, starring Numira Pace, a girl with a dragon uh, tattoo f- fame. One half of a couple who have lost a daughter and find an unusual replacement, to say the least. Uh, Gemma, Maria, and Ingvar, this is Numira Pace and Hilmer Snare. 
Gudensnen, sorry about that, Hilmar, <laughs> are farmers living in a remote part of Iceland. Uh, for ages at the beginning of this, I thought, great, nobody's going to speak and it's brilliant. <laughs> it's just, you can't take your eyes off it, but there's all you're watching is people farming. Yeah, it's, 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 it's um, it, in that kind of vein of folk horror, although we were discussing this and, and maybe it isn't necessarily mm. too far into the horror genre, more of a thriller family drama. And there's a psychological thing involved here too, isn't there? Yeah, Definitely. Like, So you talked uh, about um, that the, the fact that they're grieving, there's loss, there's loneliness, there's like, I mean, when we first meet this couple, I think the actors are incredible and they really, 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 um, that this film is completely carried on their shoulders, especially the character of Maria, mm. I think. Um, again, she you just can't stop watching her. And I mean, and for good periods of the film, the, the, the camera is just squarely on her face and, and the depth of emotion there really sells what is quite a, a funny idea. Yeah, because what am I allowed to talk about here? Well, <laughs> let us talk about the fact that um, we know that something has happened in their past and I think it, it's, it, it doesn't take too long to work out that they've lost a child. You and, know. and we notice a malevolent presence at the start of the film as well where you, see, you kind of hear this heavily breathing kind of, yeah. it sounds like, could be man, could be beast, we don't know, but it's kind of heading towards where they live, this gorgeous remote kind of area of Iceland where it sounds like it's raining yeah. gravel, it's incredible. But, but it's the lambing season and yeah. inevitably one of the lambs needs to be looked after. So Numi Rapace as Mammy brings the lamb in to the house and before we know it, that lamb is wearing Wellington boots and an anorak and, yeah. and, and preparing breakfast in the kitchen. Yeah. Now, uh, it, and it just happens like you kind yeah, of, you have to look twice to say, is that is, is what I think happening? Is it actually happening here? I had to rewind two or three times. To yeah, check. you said, um, uh, without, like, as Gemma was saying, without those performances of, 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 of Numi Rapace and, and, um, Peter, and, and Peter, um, this would not, they wouldn't sell this at all, the idea of the half lamb, half human hybrid. Um, they are very committed and because of that, it does almost get there in terms of, of completing its themes and also being a story about, you know, parenthood and grief and loss. Yeah. But there is a kind of a elephant in the room and that the CGI of this particular little beastie is quite poor and it is very distracting. It's unfortunate, but because there is a lot to be said for how unusual and weird and surreal yeah. moment uh, this could be, but... I cannot stress how odd this thing looks. The Icelandic Tourist Board will be delighted because yeah. you just want to go. It just looks amazing. It's an amazing looking film. Yeah. So Johansson is, um, he he's from, this is his directorial is Val, debut. Uh, Valdemar Johansson, Valdemar much easier Johansson. name. Thank you, Valdemar. <laughs> yes, definitely. So uh, th- he is from um, a camera department, an electric department. So he obviously has a great visual eye. Mm. And apparently this came to fruition from uh a series of sketches that he had been drawing up that he developed then into this script with uh, Sjun, the uh, a local poet and novelist. Um, so, like, it, he definitely has a deep, deep imagination. I just don't necessarily think the characterizations are there. It, the pacing is too slow for it to be an actual script. But but the way he he attacks the visuals of this, it's mm. it's so striking. I mean, the landscape alone is is incredible. Right. So you had a little, some shortcomings, then you, you just get kind of didn't come together. But is yeah, it still worth seeing, Michael? The, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think the drama is not may, is maybe a little flat and com- not as compelling as it as it might have needed to be for such an unusual surreal concept but I think it's left it like, like in terms of you're saying about the Icelandic uh, tourist board yeah it's a beautiful looking film the sound is, is fantastic yeah I would recommend seeing it although with reservations I mean do please do do a little bit of research before you go in because right. otherwise you'll get you know, a shock yeah right, you'll okay. get a shock start uh, I'll give it two and a half two and a half what are you saying overall on this one Gemma it's not a bad film 
right? But it is definitely an acquired taste and it's not for me. So two and a half. Two and a half from yeah. you as well. That's Gemma Crea and Michael Pope. Our reviewers this evening speaking to us about Lamb, Don't Look Up and at the very top of it all, West Side Story, the film that converted Michael Pope to musicals. 12 minutes to 8 on Thursday Night's Arena. The original Sex and the City series aired from 1998 to 2004. 94 episodes, six seasons. The show followed best friends Carrie Bradshaw, Sarah Jessica Parker, Miranda Hobbs, Cynthia Nixon, Samantha Jones, Kim Cattrall and Charlotte York, Kristen Davis, all living in New York. Four characters, four actors, obviously, there. This has led, the, the series led to two films, 2008's Sex and the City and 2010's, you'll never guess what, Sex and the City 2. A script was created for a third film, but Kim Cattrall decided she did not want to be part of it. The film was ultimately scrapped. Now, 17 years after the original series, most of the characters are back in a brand new reboot called And Just Like That. And like many people, we are seeing them navigate life and love in New York in their 50s because it happened just like that. I'm joined now by Jen Gannon, who's been watching And Just Like That. Um, I, I suppose the, the elephant in the room, let's yes. get, or the elephant not in the not room in, in the this room. case, oh. really. Um, no, no Samantha. Samantha. And yeah. and that's dispensed with within the first two minutes, so it's not a spoiler, and it's all over the media anyway. She's not dead, don't worry, but she's living in London, living her well, best I'll life. I tell you what, you know, why don't I let them explain? Will I exactly. let them? Yeah, here we go. It's 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 the three of them, isn't it? Yes, yes, it yeah. is the three of them. Some of them talking a little bit less than others. You know, it is kind of like she's dead, Samantha. We never even talk about her. Well, what is there to say? I told her that because of, you know, what the book business is now, it just didn't make sense for me to keep her on as a publicist. She said fine and then fired me as a friend. She didn't fire you. Okay, she stopped returning my calls. You know Samantha. Her pride got damaged. Which was why I kept leaving her voicemails asking her to please call me back so we could talk about this and fix it. Look, I understand that she was upset, but I thought I was more to her than an ATM. You are. She was embarrassed. So embarrassed she took a job and moved to London? There we go. Sarah Jessica Parker, Cynthia Nixon. I think it's just the two of them. That's actually, just the two of them. Yeah, the two of them the restaurant, yeah. talking about it there. They haven't met up with um, with Kristen Davis or Charlotte just yet. Um, Jen, I suppose, yeah, look, the problem is you can't listen to anything that they say about Samantha, particularly that, and, and not think, oh, they're actually saying that about Kim Cattrall. Especially because uh, Sarah Jessica Parker has such a hand in the series and that was part of their very public feud <clears throat> was the fact that Sarah Jessica Parker was elevated to executive producer, but it wasn't like all boats weren't raised and the, the other girls didn't get a raise and Kim Cattrall thought that she deserved one because she was the one doing the full frontal nudity of the show and Sarah Jessica Parker was not involved in that at all. At all. And then their feud got personal and and I think the show is definitely fan service. It's, it's mm. a show for the fans. And knowing how popular a character Samantha is, the creators are desperately trying to entice Kim Cattrall back. And the constant reference into her character makes it feel almost like they're guilting her into returning, yeah, yeah. which is ext- really strange, given that Cattrall has said publicly many times that she is very unhappy and didn't want to return to the show at all. So I feel that strikes the wrong note completely. And the more you explain, the more <laughs> it seems that you have loads to explain, yeah. uh, I suppose. But 
but look, let's put that to the one side. She's not there and the uh, reasons... But you feel a, a, a loss that she isn't there yeah. because I think almost because Samantha isn't there anymore, they had to change the tone of the show because she brought so much of the body energy of the show that it's it's different. It's much less of a sitcom. It's, it's not a comedy right. anymore. It's a drama inflect with comedy. Oh, right. And that okay. is the way... There's no voiceover. Carrie's reassuring narration is gone. Completely. Oh, the narration is, so there's no more Carrie. No, just a, there's a touch of it at anymore? the end. Now she is. Well, she doesn't much do much writing in the two episodes we've seen. She's a podcaster now. She's involved in a podcast, and she says they're like jury duty now, which I think is probably one of the best lines of the whole uh, two episodes because it does hark back to when she was talking to Samantha before about theater in New York, and she said, "Have they made that mandatory now?" Which I <laughs> always love. Um, but you know, King Michael Patrick King, who's the creator of the show. He is trying to, with this series, atone for the sins of what happened with the films because the films he has a lot of were trash. He has a lot of penance to do for those he two does, films. He does because they turned the women into shrieking caricatures and who we were, you know, tone deaf capitalists who were lost to consumption. And, you know, there were bits, elements of the actual original show that aged badly as in you had a sex columnist who was afraid of bisexuality you had a New York populated solely by white people you had a black character that was basically used like an accessory like a Fendi purse and all of that is being atoned for now with and just like that so you have the introduction of you have a writer's room that is much more diverse you have the columnist well the essayist uh, Samantha Irby and you have fresh off the boat writer Rachna Fruckbroom they're both contributing to the show and you have a whole new cast of characters that are introduced in the two episodes but I do wonder about the way that they're introduced in the two episodes What kind of characters are you talking about? Well you have Carrie's the host of the the podcast that Carrie is on is uh, Shay played by Sarah Ramirez who's a queer non-binary Latinx comedian and Shay is probably the character that holds their own the most out of the new lineup and has this very enjoyable screen presence but you do hope that they get their own storyline later on because a lot of the women that have been introduced into the new series they feel it feels like they've been held up as some kind of learning moment for the white straight characters and the white the predominantly white audience who are fans of yeah. Sex and the City uh, the original show and uh, we lived it suffers in a diff- from that a bit We lived in a different world 20 years ago when maybe we could kind of laugh at the, you know, the shoes and the mm. handbags and all, all of the rest of it. These are three women in their 50s now. Um, how, how, what kind of women are they? Well, it's a much, the series is a much stronger cocktail than your old favourite. It's a more sombre tone and that might be a bit off-putting for people. It still has the glamour. It still looks beautiful as ever and as luxurious as ever. But it has to strike a different tone in a way because they're not in their 30s anymore. There was a lot of sex in the city that was very hopeful very optimistic and you know you could just turn a corner and and something else would happen that would you know make your life change your life completely now because they're in their 50s and they're settled in relationships it's a very different dynamic but you do have them trying to at least strike out on their own and someone like Miranda she's now studying for a master's in human rights to become a legal advocate and you you see there's the more engagement with the current political environment that there never was previously Mm. in Sex and the City And what Um, about the relationships that they're in I mean I think when we got to the end of the series there was a lot of complaint too about the let's wrap it all up happily ever after there they are they're all sorted now in relationships Mm. what about the relationships that they were in do we get into those we do and I don't want to say too much because I don't want to spoil it on people Uh, but I guess some have survived and some haven't exactly but I mean what I want from it is more of that and I think uh, what happens is a, a lot of the two episodes although 
it is extremely comforting and it's beautiful to see these women back in these characters that you're so fond of. There's a lot of explaining to do and as I said, a lot of atonement. And until that is over, then you won't get into the, the nuts and bolts and the meat of the show. And I can't mm. wait for it to kind of settle down a bit into the rhythms of the original show where you're just having women talking about their lives and their struggles and the stresses of, you know, being, this is what this show is supposed to be. It's about being a woman, exploring that, about being a woman in your 50s and sexuality in your 50s and what changes, what develops and what their relationships have turned into and just in those first two episodes you don't you get a flavour of it but you do want more which is a good thing Well, well give us a sense of I know you, you, you want to be careful about giving too much <laughs> away for people who haven't seen the episodes yet um, Kirsten Davis Kristen Davis's character rather Charlotte I mean she was, she was kind of a spoilt she child was. feel she, off her she in was her 30s privileged Park Avenue princess and but I think the, the this upsetting thing about what they've done to Charlotte's character is they've kept the characterization of the film so she in the TV series she had a, a little bit of a broader rep where you saw mm. her you know struggles with pregnancy and con- conceiving yeah particularly um, in the later uh, later yeah. seasons but uh, in this she's gone to what she was like in the films when she very over emotional and and a narrow almost cliche characterization which I wasn't too mm. enamoured with and she's uh, developed a strange obsession with one of the other mothers in the school who's played by Nicole Ari Parker and um, it doesn't really get there's nothing for her to do much with Nicole Ari Parker as of yet as Lisa except for being admired by Charlotte and it feels like this very strange exoticism and right. I am hoping that will change um, uh, Miranda Miranda yeah. Unfortunately, Cynthia Miranda Nixon has Parker. turned into a bit of a misguided woke scold and she has these very bungled attempts at being a white ally and they're dismantled by her black professor, uh, Naya, who's played by the morning show's Karen Pittman. And she's exasperated by Miranda. That sounds like an interesting line. It of, is, because she is exasperated though. by her stumbling through the, the discourse in this very overbearing manner. But I think... And it, the white safer complex element is an interesting subject to explore. And I, and I do think the depiction is accurate, but it does lack a lot of nuance and subtlety. A lot of it feels like a bit clunky and a, a bit like mm. it's a, you know, a, a Twitter anecdote. Somebody, de, you know, a, describing a misfortune on Twitter, which, and I also think Miranda was such a savvy and smart character. Would she, she was, have gone yeah. straight so far into being so ignorant? I don't know. And I, I would, I can't wait to see that storyline develop though, hopefully further and, and move away from the initial shocks that we're getting and the initial twists and the initial reintroduction. Any of the men... Um, obviously if you think of Carrie you're going to think of one Mr. Man or yeah. really Mr. Big are we going to see Big is, back. We... Um, Big is you know probably the most uh, traditionalist as in he stayed the same as Carrie said in the original series he's like the Chrysler building and New York is not the same without him and Sex and the City has to have him in that way and he hasn't changed much at all really um, and I think that they need someone who's a constant because as everybody else is shifting in the show and you're seeing new sides to them there has to be somebody there that remains the same but in saying that I will say Sarah Jessica, Sarah Jessica Parker's performance is as always luminous and I think she injects this joy into the character right. Carrie Bradshaw who could be seen as annoying and very irritating yeah. to a lot of people Very, but she does this nuanced complex way of being her that right. makes you really like her and really enjoy seeing that her That sounds again. as if okay you're kind of saying we've only had two episodes but you, you know if you watch the first two episodes maybe of the original series you'd be going God they, they really travelled a distance from Very us for those so. two episodes so are you are you hopeful are you disappointed can it survive without Samantha I'm cautiously cautiously hopeful cautiously optimistic like the women of the show I mean I think it can be clunky at times but as I said it's extremely comforting mm. like and you do love seeing these women again on screen and, and that's the best part of it 
Is it all up there to watch now or are they going to do Just the, the two are up there now and then they're going to release them week on week. Week on week. See, we're going back to old we style are. television. Don't be giving it all away at exactly. once. You've got to give, Hook them reel in. them in. Yes. Reel them in. <laughs> bit by bit. Jan Gannon speaking to us about And Just Like That available now on Sky Comedy and Now TV. And that is our lot for this Thursday evening. Liam Murphy and Paula Shields Research. Janice Murphy and Michelle Gibson were the broadcast coordinators. Jimmy Doyle was on sound this evening and tonight's programme was produced by Ola McGowan. I will talk to you tomorrow night once again, seven o'clock here on RT Radio 1.